Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes. I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute, and I'm your host here from week to week. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. And those who train with us learn how to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This week, we are back walking through the book of James. And uh, last week, we kind of introduced uh, James 2, 14 through 26, as we looked at uh, the broader context and the rhetorical strategies of James, as well as where this passage fits in the overall book and even in the New Testament and the whole of Scripture. And we need to remember that the main purpose of this letter is to uh, encourage this flock to remain steadfast and and joyful in the midst of their trials. Uh, James has in mind their maturity in Christ as his end goal uh, for these people. And uh, also, these are these are dissidents who were in a, a cultural exile and were tempted to believe potentially that the best way of their deliverance may be to kind of posture themselves as maybe a fighting community or one who combats the enemy on their terms. Um, and in this context, we have James chapter 2. Let me read verse 14 to get us started. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him. So James here is attacking the objection that any kind of bare faith in Jesus without obedience to him is enough to save. And I think it's important to note uh, that this is not the first time that this idea has been brought up in this book. Um, In chapter one, we find out, you know, that our faith is going to be tested and that a a verbal profession in Jesus, uh, any kind of verbal profession uh, of faith is going to be challenged uh, in the midst of everyday trials and tribulations. Um, So this isn't anything new uh, coming in in the full context of this book. So, you know, I think, I think it's really interesting that he brings in like the context of this community. He, he jumps from this, you know, to us Westerners, this big statement about faith and works. And then he, he jumps into something very practical. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, comes into your midst and you say, go in peace, be warmed and filled without actually doing anything for them. That faith is a dead faith. And uh, I think this word is a a powerful one for those in our age who, uh, as we talked a little bit about last week, maybe argue or talk about theological and biblical matters online or, or in, in other, in other mediums, but who lack actual Christian practice in their daily life. Yeah, I mean, maybe to state the obvious up up front, you know, um, chapter one, the contrast has, at least in part, been between hearing and doing, um, i.e. between hearing the word and actually doing nothing about it. Here, it's more between saying and and doing to to talk about the poor or even to the poor in compassionate ways is of absolutely no use to them, you know, um, the kind of faith that does that does other people no good and so it should be just as obvious that it won't do us any good it won't do the people who have that kind of faith any good it, it hasn't got the um life to it to save others and it won't uh, save its bearers either to put it like that and that that seems to be uh, at least the plain um uh, sense of, of the verses doesn't it yeah and i think i mean there is a I can sense this in the circles that I run in. There, I think it's easier to fall in this trap that the the listeners, uh, or the hearers of James are in. I mean, it's not that hard to imagine someone um, in a liturgical church with biblical worship, with a lot of the right doctrines and, you know, a, a healthy church situation. Someone comes into their midst that actually needs something and uh, someone piously saying, you know, the Lord be merciful to you. Christ be with you. 
when there's an opportunity for you to be Christ for them in that moment, in a physical way, in a way that manifests your faith by your work. And it's not even, although it is about serving this, these brothers or sisters that need clothing and food, but the point that James is making is that the kind of faith that just tells them something is not going to deliver the person. It's not going to save the person. That kind of faith without the works that he's talking about is dead. Okay. So the whole point is to get people to think about their own trajectory, the trajectory of their life and their, their status before God. Um, your status before God is not what you think it is if all you're doing is talking, if all you're doing is speaking. I think, as you just said, Brian, I think our world, and, and maybe even Protestantism, seduces us to think that it's all about talking and speaking and writing and proclaiming and explaining and writing manifestos and theological treatises and things. It's very easy for us to fall into that trap, to think somehow that that secures our status before God. And James's point here is, is extremely difficult to hear for a lot of people uh, that uh, true faith, genuine faith, living faith is faith working through love. Without the working through love part, there is no genuine faith. Moving on to um, verse 18, it kind of feels to me that this next objection is almost kind of treating faith and works as if, well, one guy might like apples, the other likes pears, you know, I've got faith, you've got works, each to their own sort of thing. And um, the uh, rebuttal to it, obviously James could just state what he's already stated, but it, it more goes towards, um, as far as I can see, and again, just stating the obvious, but um, showing um, the sense in which um, faith without works is uh, invisible. It, it can't be uh, shown to uh, anyone else, kind of mere uh, faith. And because it just reminds me of the way in, in which good works are supposed to adorn the message of, of the gospel in, uh, is that uh, Titus perhaps, um, and, and to make it look um, a, attractive, but it's obviously going um, beyond uh, that sort of faith w without those works um, uh, isn't even part of the, of the gospel. It, it's just not what any of Jesus' preaching kind of ev ever has in mind. And although we've seen these, the understanding of faith and works and the role of works within um, justification um, twisted and confused a bit in some contexts that have been shaped by the Reformation. The Reformation at its best was very clear about the distinction between these things, but also by drawing the distinction well, enabled works to come into their own as true expressions of faith, not means by which we secure our standing with God, but the manifestation and the um, the way in which those things which mark us out as the true people of God and those things that also are uh, an act 
that is freed up by the fact that we're not trying to secure our standing with God. And I've found reading some of the reformers on this um, to be incredibly helpful in trying, in getting beyond some of the anxieties that people can have that they think are Protestant, but aren't very Protestant at all. Um, they're not sufficiently Protestant. I think if we have a truly Protestant understanding of this, we can actually really understand the value and the importance of works, not as an afterthought, but as that which we're being created, the, we're the Lord's workmanship created for good works. And we would not be able to do such good works were our standing with God secured by those good works. Rather, they are a manifestation of the life that has been given to us, the standing that we have been granted. And they are ways by which all of that is made public. And I found that incredibly helpful to think through, to move beyond some of the anxieties that people have on this front into the richer expression of richer theology of works that you do find within the New Testament, which requires you to make that distinction between justification and works, but also to recognize the role that works do play that James discusses here, and you see at various places in Paul and elsewhere. That's an important clarification, Elser. I appreciate that. Um, I suppose it's probably at this point in uh, working through James that we should um, just think about the fact that Martin Luther early on uh, said that this was this epistle was truly an epistle of straw, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel in it. That's that's um, that's words from Luther in his preface to the New Testament in 1522, which is you know early on in the Reformation, um, and they were. They were re those words, by the way, were removed from every other edition after 1530 something, I think mid 1530s. And, you know, why? Why remove it? Well, uh, 15 years as a pastor makes a difference. Uh, and Luther, Luther is, I mean, sometimes said of Calvin that he never changed. I don't think that's accurate. But, you know, we have a pretty good record of Luther's development of his theological progress of his understanding of the gospel. And he, he came to understand not, not as well as he could have, I think, just because of his law gospel distinction, but he did come to understand that there was something of the good news, the gospel in this particular portion of, of James. There's, uh, I think it's his preference to, uh, his preface to Romans, where Luther describes faith uh, in, in ways that you've just talked about, Alistair. He says this, for example, oh, it is, and he's describing faith, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are done, but before the question is asked, it's already done this and is constantly doing that. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. And yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. So this is the dear brother Martin Luther, who early on had problems with James and later on uh, begins to understand the importance of works, um, distinguished, obviously, from faith, but never separated. There are 
any number of people that James could um, choose to mm. talk about who justified their um, or followed up their faith by works, you know. So um, Abraham and Rahab, you know, what, what are the, yeah, what, what do you think the reasons are for focusing on these two characters? Well, I think, I, as I said, I think in the previous podcast, I think that he chose them because their situation is is similar in many ways to the situation of the people he's addressing. So Abraham is being tested. We know this uh, from Genesis 22. God tested Abraham and said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. And we know that these folks here, these banished, exiled Jewish Christians are being tested. The testing of their faith is supposed to produce steadfastness and back in James chapter one. So, and it's also quite possible here that he chooses this particular illustration of, of, of working faith, of trusting of faith and works, because, you know, if we actually believe Acts and what Paul says about what he was doing and apparently other agents of the apostate Jewish council were doing is they they were taking people, they were imprisoning people, they were torturing people, and people were being killed. Stephen was killed. So that means that some of these Christian folks were losing sons, losing brothers, losing husbands, maybe also wives. Paul talks about women and children. Uh, so there's that. There, Abraham's faith in verse 22 is active along with his works of sacrificing his son and trusting God, and his faith was completed, the ESV says, but this is uh, the same word matured by his work. So again, James is, one of James's themes here is that God is maturing them, he's growing them, he's completing them, he's perfecting them. Uh, and one of the ways God does this is by prompting them to accept their sacrifice as God's way of testing them. So I think that's one of the reasons why Abraham is chosen here. I may be wrong about that, but it seems it seems to be connected. I think it's also worth, when we see references like this to Old Testament characters and allusions to Old Testament texts or citations of them, go back and read the original and think about the context and what might be doing. If we go back to Genesis 22 and the offering up of Isaac, there are allusions back to the events of chapter 12, where Abraham was first called. He's called to leave, to go to a land that he's going to be shown, and a very similar command is given to him in chapter 22. As we read through the text of Abraham's life, it's very clear that there is a connection between these two things, and that the events of chapter 22 are climactic. They serve to be a sort of capstone upon Abraham's life of faith. If we go back to chapter 12, he's called to leave his past behind. In chapter 22, he's called to surrender his future in his son Isaac. And putting those things together, we can see that in his original response of faith to receive the word of God, to believe it and to act in terms of it, we see that he is accounted righteous, that he has good standing with God. The Lord 
establishes covenant with him in chapter 15, verse 6, which is quoted here, and Paul also quotes elsewhere within his arguments. But in chapter 22, there is this perfection of Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith, as it were, arrives at, at, at its fullest expression. And there's a renewal of the promises and a further vindication of Abraham within that context. And I think that once we read the original context, it makes a lot more sense about the sorts of things that James and Paul are doing. They're taking different parts of Abraham's life. They're taking different emphases. So, for instance, Paul is very concerned to point out that Abraham was given good standing with God while still uncircumcised. He did not have that covenant status and marker um, that his descendants would later have. And so his standing with God is purely on the basis of grace by the God who justifies the ungodly. But then later on, we have this vindication of Abraham at the end of his life, because you have done this and not spared your own son. And then the blessing on the basis of that. There, is, there are these two events within Abraham's life. They're not in conflict with each other. They both highlight important facts about the nature of his standing before God and the way in which his relationship with God is worked out. And James is focusing upon one while Paul is focusing upon another. And the more that we pay attention to those original contexts, the more some of the problems that we have and questions that we have will be resolved because those two contexts in Abraham's life are not in conflict. They are very much things that can be reconciled. Likewise, with the story of Rahab, we can think about Rahab as in many respects a great contrast to Abraham. There are similarities in their stories, but Rahab is a Gentile, a Canaanite. She's someone who is very clearly an ungodly person. She's described here as a prostitute. Abraham is someone who's lived in covenant with the Lord for many years by this point of chapter 22 of Genesis. And so you have this um, female Gentile prostitute, and then you have this male faithful covenant member, indeed the father of the faithful, which is another reason why he might be mentioned. And in both of these examples, we see these principles relating to faith and works and our relationship with God, our standing before him, and the manifestation of the true character of our um, relationship with him being exhibited. And so as these two witnesses, they establish the principle. And both of these uh have a promise of resurrection and victory on the other side of their faith that is sacrificial. I mean, Rahab was called to something really difficult, but Abraham was called to lay a son upon the altar and sacrifice him. And these, you know, Christian dissidents who are receiving this letter are going through all of these various trials. And they're not only called to mimic their faith, but inherent in that is the promise of victory and resurrection and, and new life on the other side of it. Even if our sons are slaughtered, even if we are slaughtered, even if our city crumbles around us, that crown of glory that we learned about in chapter one remains as we are justified by our works. Yeah. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life. Also the body they may kill God's truth abides still his kingdom is ours. It remains. Uh, yeah, that's that's significant. Now, look at the other thing here about Abraham is that Abraham's faith is matured by his works. And then, as Alistair said, what was initially Abraham's 
trust in God in Genesis 15 is fulfilled in Genesis 22. And then as a result of his obedience and maturity, he's called a friend of God. Um, and, and that's a designation that draws from Isaiah 41 and 2 Chronicles 20. And only Moses and Abraham are called friends of God in the Hebrew scriptures. Mm. Um, and Remember, Jesus says now in John 15 that we're all friends. Uh, we are not servants or slaves. The servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but he says, I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. So uh, this concept of friendship, important to James, later in the letter, he'll challenge his readers not, well, to reject the friendship of the world, but here in the story of Abraham, what it means to be God's friend is more than just his buddy. Uh, so just as Moses and Abraham were given insight into God's plan, into God's um, promises, into what he was doing, and then as his counselors, as his advisors were able to talk with him about you know, what he should and what he should do based on his promises. So here, Abraham elevated to a place of honor in God's court. Um, and remember, too, Abraham was the first man in Scripture to be called a prophet in Genesis 20. And in that context, he is, he is uh, I think it's Abimelech is told that Abraham is a, pro a prophet and he will pray for you. In other words, he'll intercede and argue with God for your life. Um, and that, that is what a friend of God is. It's a trusted counselor. Um, and if, if, if these brothers reading this epistle would take time to reflect on the implications of James using Abraham as an example of mature faith, becoming a friend of God, then they should be encouraged because, uh, they would be like Abraham, not just talk about God's just justice, but as friends of God, given the privileged place to advise the Lord about their present circumstances, as, and, and, and James will make this explicit again, as we said, later on in, in chapter five, where Elijah, who is also a prophet and a friend of God, prayers were able to bring both drought and rain um, and this is what these brothers could be as friends of God if they, if they live out their faith in the ways that James is admonishing them to do. Something I've been considering, I'd be interested to know what you guys make of it, um, in large part because it only occurred to me a few minutes ago, but um, it's that obviously in the example of Abraham, um, we can very much think about his um, act of sacrifice as the completion um, of his faith, because we have his history and we know it was a long time beforehand that he was first called by the Lord. Um, in Rahab, we know a lot less, but she does say um, when she hides the spies, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings. Now, the incident with the Red Sea was obviously 40 years um, beforehand. And so you could have a situation where 
Rahab has had um, a, a long faith in 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 the Lord. We we needn't sort of think of her as having been converted when the spies turned up or something. And so, um, yeah, I'd be interested to know what you think about that as a, as an idea, at least. It's certainly a possibility. Um, it's worth considering. I think another thing that's interesting to reflect upon here is that Rahab's act is one of deception. And um, there are a lot of questions about whether acts of deception are ever legitimate. But she has actually praised her act of faith is sending the spies out another way and, by implication, misdirecting the people of Jericho. You're taking then, Alistair, um, sent them out the other way as the spies. Is is that the way you're reading that? Yes. Uh, however we read it, I think it leads to the same thing. Yeah, Rahab's faith had to come from somewhere. Um, and uh, she was vindicated by the work she did in... in uh, sending the messengers out the other way, but um, she'd obviously heard of the Lord's work in Israel's, in the, in the Israelites coming out of Exodus. And so she had some sort of faith, uh, but like Abraham, that faith was matured. That faith was fulfilled, was shown to be living and active uh, when she behaved the way she did with reference to uh, delivering the messengers. Now, you make a contemporary kind of application here. Um, I think it's helpful for us to pause and remember that faith, true faith, is going to be judged by God to be true based on how we've behaved, how that faith has lived itself out, um, and not just about what we say. Every, every picture of the final judgment presented to us in the New Testament mm -hmm. always involves a judgment of works, whether it's John 5 or Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats or 2 Corinthians 5 before the judgment seat of Christ, or of course, Revelation 20. Uh, you uh, books are opened, and the dead are judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, I think that should give Christian leaders, especially pastors, some pause, uh, especially when so many people have been taught that entrance into heaven will be determined by a theological exam at the gate. Uh, too many people, too many people believe that their admission into heavenly glory is going to depend on how they answer certain questions. You know, why should I let you into heaven? And if you can articulate the correct answer, then you'll be admitted. And the way these evangelistic stories are told, everything depends on what we say. If we can, if we can explain the doctrine of justification by faith alone or salvation by grace, everything will be okay. But is that true? <laughs> Does James or the rest of the Bible give us any hope that our judgment by God will be all about the accuracy of our confession of faith? Um, I, no, there's, there's no way that's accurate, especially given all the places where the final judgment is listed. Um, what James is teaching is what the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 30 
chapter 33 says, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angel shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good and evil, good or evil, I'm sorry, and that's end quote from confession. So this is not does not mean, of course, that you're meriting your salvation or you're drawing down God's love or you build up enough good works so that you'll be accepted. That's that's not the case at all. But the 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 reality, the accuracy of evaluation of your faith will be based on works. Um, I think that's the value of verse 24 and James 2. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I, by the way, I have I've used that passage when for about a decade, I was the chairman of the examinations committee for ordinance coming into the presbytery. And I would often, without giving the context, just say something like, what do you think about this statement? Um, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And almost everybody would, you know, be shocked at that and say, "God, that's Roman Catholicism. That's uh, that's not accurate." I said, "Well, that's actually a quotation from James chapter two. <laughs> um, and so, what do you do with that? Um, it, it's 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 very it's a challenge to us because we have, I think, misunderstood the Protestant and Reformed doctrine of justification by faith alone." Uh, to, to often, too often to mean simply if we understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that's sufficient. Uh, and if we can able to articulate and say it, that's good enough. It's also worth remembering, as we've seen at many other points in the epistle of James, that this is just the teaching of Christ. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Again, there seems to be points of reference with the Sermon on the Mount here. Um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And the way that such people can be responded to with the statement, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then again, everyone who hears these words of mine and does, does them or does not do them, um, that distinction between hearing and doing and between saying and doing, they're very prominent within Christ's teaching, not just in the teaching of James here. One aspect that might be worth looking into here is the relationship between James's discussion of faith and the ways that we've tended to discuss faith within the Reformed tradition, knowledge, assent, and trust. And it seems to me one of the things about that traditional definition is it brings together various parts of the person. We have knowledge in our minds, we have a trust in our hearts, and we have an assent that's a sort of a virtue of the chest, perhaps, that um, we commit ourselves, we give our amen. And I wonder whether um, James's discussion of faith here, what faith is not, um, what faith is insufficient, and how faith is necessarily expressed um, can help us to have a fuller understanding of what our forebears were trying to get at in their discussion of faith and its true character.
So um, the kind of faith that will not save us is just mere intellectual assent, knowledge and intellectual sense. I, I find it interesting in this regard uh, when you add trust to to this, it, that trust has to be embodied, um, has to be worked out. It, it, it's not something that just happens in your head or an emotional thing, um, even at the center of your being in your heart. If it's in your heart, if it's at the center of your being, it's going to work itself out. So I find it fascinating that in Hebrews 11, we have a lot more examples of this. And, and every example we have of the faithfulness, this, uh, this uh, you know, all these faithful men in the past, uh, the point is, by faith, Abel offered, or by faith, Noah constructed an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed God when he called him out to come to a new place to live. By faith, he went, he lived. By faith, Jacob blessed each of his sons. By faith, Moses left Egypt. By faith, the people crossed the sea. It's by faith, the people did all these things. They, they worked it out. Um, and if they hadn't have worked it out, there wouldn't be any genuine faith. And I think this is something that uh, we need to keep in mind, too. We often, in popular evangelistic techniques, someone will say that they trust in Jesus. Someone will say the sinner's prayer. Um, and then all of a sudden we'll tell him, at least in some, in some uh, uh, strategies, oh, don't let anyone ever tell you that you're not going to heaven, and almost as if it doesn't matter now how you live or what you do. And so, for some people, that's true. They they think they got saved, so how they live uh, doesn't matter. They their faith was this initial act of assent, of knowledge of new knowledge, and then assent to that new knowledge. But they never really trust. They never really act on that faith, and so that faith is dead. It's not productive. It's useless, um, as James says. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.